welcome to Big Blend Radio, where we celebrate variety and how it adds spice to quality of life. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are super excited to welcome acclaimed author Catherine K. Abdul-Baki to the show to discuss her new memoir. It is out now, and it is called Dancing into the Light, an Arab-American Girlhood in the Middle East. It is. It came out actually in September uh, through She Writes Press, and we love them. And it follows her multicultural upbringing. Uh, it is pretty much a coming-of-age story where she's lived in different countries and um, talking about her mom's background, her mom coming from Tennessee, her dad having an Arab cultural background. So uh, she lived all over and she's going to talk to us. She, um, she's been to Beirut, Lebanon, Jerusalem, Iran, Kuwait, um, America. And uh, welcome to the show, Catherine. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you so much, Lisa. This is a very nice opportunity. I appreciate I'm it. Very- Excited to have you on the show. I know Nancy and I, Nancy, my mom and I, um, really are about um, getting people to understand um, that their coexistence can happen. And I think right now, what's happening, especially in Israel and um, is in Ukraine, and and you know, we look at what's going on in the world that we need to have these discussions more. And I think memoir. I know you've written a lot of uh, nonfiction as well, also uh, set over in the Middle East, but. Um, between both, the arts have always played a role of unity, telling the truth, and giving people stories that they can relate to more than, you know, headlines on news that could be opinionated sometimes. But someone's personal story, like your memoir, your story, um, may, re- you know, resonate with people to have a bit more understanding about coexistence and acceptance of different cultures. What do you think? I totally agree. Um, actually, most of my other work has been fiction, but this is my first um, nonfiction um, book-length book. I did write journalism before, but um, mm-hmm. even in the fiction, I wanted to bring out, you know, how we touch each other, we're, how close we are, how similar we are, even if they're different cultures. I think by going into a character's psyche and heart, um, you just you identify with that character, no matter what culture they're from. Mm-hmm. And I certainly grew up a bicultural. I grew up in the Middle East, but with an American mother and an Arab father, He's Palestinian from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And I, um, you know, experienced both sides in, in my family. But there was really, it was pretty seamless in terms of their parenting. Was um, I never felt there was a pull and push of any one culture or religion or another they seem to pretty much um, handle it very well and and my hope is that people will see that you know cross-cultural marriages and interactions do work it's the way to bring everyone close together yes and right now with what's going on in the world these these you know these wars um Mm -hmm. People start to take sides, and even if they've never been to that country, or maybe even understand or know people, you know what I mean. And that's I'm seeing people just starting to pick sides and going, "Do you know? You know, like to me, war is just. Do we have to have it? Like I know that's altruistic, right? But no, um, absolutely, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, it's a way. A memoir is a way for people to maybe open their eyes just you know in their hearts oh yeah i identify with you oh 
I never realized, you know, that I would identify maybe with someone from an Arab or Middle Eastern background. And, um, you know, all I say is this coexistence, cultural connectivity brings about a lot of good food. <laughs> so true. Stepping, <laughs> stepping stone. You know, I'm starting to read about you and read your memoir. I'm going, you know what? I know she knows some really good food, you know, that <laughs> we should be jealous of the the culinary, you know, life you've had too. Uh, music, um, learning different languages, travel. Um, you know, I think living in different cultures also gives you this kind of, um, you know, more of a global perspective, but you understand when things go wrong. You understand the power of community too, whether or not your community is in that town where you're at, but also cultural community, like having a village, even if you're in a different country. Correct. True. Yeah. Tell, let's, let's talk a little bit about, let's just start from the beginning a bit. We can't give it all away because we want everyone to buy your memoir. Okay. So everyone, again, it's dancing into the light an Arab American girlhood in the Middle East, and uh, you can go to Catherine's website, CatherineAbdulBaki.com. Did I pronounce your last name correct? Yes, you, know? you did. Okay, good. Yes. I get five points here. Okay, uh, so go to her website. The link is in the show notes, so um, it'll be there, so you can click to, it, real easy. Go to Amazon, all those places, but um, let's start about where you were born. Talk a little bit about your parents, how they met, and where you were born. Well, my mother was from Nashville, and she had um, decided by her third year of college, she went to Vanderbilt in the Northwestern, that she was taking a break from college. So she came to Washington, D.C. My father happened to be here doing some graduate work. He'd gone, come from Jerusalem uh, about four years earlier, gone, done his undergraduate at University of New Mexico in Michigan, uh, stayed and then came to Washington to do some graduate work and, and to find work, you know, through the grapevine, he heard it was a good place to go. And they met one night in a, a delicatessen, a Middle Eastern delicatessen where my father worked and my mother used to drop by to buy groceries. And she was 19, he was 22, and um, they fell madly in love at that point and uh, got married. I was born here. But a few years later, my father um, had a job uh, overseas in Tehran with the uh, Department of Defense to open English language school uh, schools for the um, officers who wanted to learn English there. And so we went to Tehran. Um, wow. And yeah. so going there, that how old were you then when you were? There? I was four. Mm-hmm. And but I I recall pretty much um, a lot of things of Tehran childhood memories you know but um, it was very different I learned Farsi I spoke Farsi um, just from picking it up here and there I um, remember that you know the cold weather there in the winter the uh, um, just the Iranian culture the foods I think when you mentioned food mm-hmm. uh, we the Iranian food stills I can still see the, the you know the sauteed onions and the rice oh. lentils and and the spices and uh, uh, that 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 made an impression on me seeing our gardener we had a gardener who knitted his own socks uh, wow. I'd never seen any man do that you know um 
it was just a uh, sipping hot cups of tea with a sugar lump in your mouth the way you yes. often do. <laughs> I've never seen that, but you know, these make an impression on a young child. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I think because I was an only child for a long time, I, I, um, I absorbed all this and I, I had those memories that are very clear to me. You know, and it's interesting. I was an only child as well. Um, <gasps> growing up i have brothers somewhere in the world but um just growing up in in kenya pretty much in my formative years you know um i lived with two different tribes at one point and just we also lived with a muslim family for a while and the food the tea oh my gosh (laughs) seriously the tea there's nothing like it I, i i can't explain it to people but I find it interesting about your mom actually going to a Middle Eastern grocery store because yeah. I think there's something about the spices that maybe might have attracted her to the store. Maybe I don't know. I have a friend, Ruth Milstein. She's on our show all the time. She's from Israel and she's a cooking expert. And she oh, sent yes. me turmeric once and I'm like, this is the best turmeric. She says it's yes. from Israel. Of you course. Can't beat it. It's very Everything different. From Israel is pure, you know. And so I'm like, okay. And, but I mean, she's right. It, it was the best turmeric I've ever had. And so, you know, she's, she's very adamant. Of, and back East really has the stores, um, just with us traveling and going, you know, in, uh, Maryland and, and your area in Virginia, the stores have far more Middle Eastern food than on the West Coast. Um, it seems to me. Oh, interesting. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, we large population. Stores. Yeah, in the and uh, Michigan and the Midwest also. Um, so I'm like, oh, good, we can get good spices. <laughs> it's all about the spice. But the tea, you know, growing up that way and, and the same kind of foods, um, we also ate a lot with our hands. You'd wash in bowls of water. And then I don't know if you ever experienced that too, eating with, like different cultures. Some it's a no-no and some it's like, that's how we live. So did you ever experience that kind of change? Well, not really because, um, you know, our household was very American. And mm-hmm. so, um, my mother was very particular about table manners, Western table manners. And, but we did, and there's a little part in my book where there's a little bit of a, a clash between her and my father. Middle Eastern food, you dip a lot with bread. Yeah. So you use the bread to dip into olive oil and, you know, spices, zatar in our case, or into hummus or into mm-hmm. baba ghanoush. You know, mm. you you can put them into your plate, but it's also acceptable to take a piece of bread and to dip it, you know, into a communal plate kind of, uh, you know, yeah. using a, a piece of bread as uh, instead of a utensil. Uh, in Jordan, they have a dish in Palestine. They have a dish called mensef, which is a big rice with lamb. And people traditionally eat that with the, their hands, with mm-hmm. the right hand only, because the right hand is right. the one you use. And uh, so we've, you know, I've seen that, but that was not a part of my everyday growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because your but, mom being very on the Western, like, yes. and then and then she made you go to school and learn how to speak yeah. and write in Arab. I mean, that's like, how do you, I mean, that's not easy. I did do that with different languages too. As a kid, it's easier than an adult, but like Arab, like to me, that's like a whole different writing profile. Well, and it was because um, in where we were in Kuwait when she did that, um, we had moved there by then, a couple, and I was six years old, and she knew I was never going to learn Arabic at home because she didn't speak it, and the whole the language we spoke at home was English. 
with my dad. So she decided she was going to put me into a little uh, village school uh, where they were all uh, local girls, Kuwaiti girls, and also other Arabs, Lebanese, Palestinians, Syrians, whose parents worked in Kuwait. And so the only people who spoke English there were the teachers. So I had to quickly learn Arabic. And she was adamant that I learn Arabic. She um, she never learned much except for a few words to get by with. But she was adamant that I learn it. And I was very unhappy at first because, of course, I didn't speak any language. I looked different from everybody. I'm a redhead with freckles. And uh, when you're six years old, you don't want to look different from everybody. <laughs> everybody mm-hmm. else had this beautiful amber skin and dark hair, you know. So I was with this little, uh, in this little, uh, girls school in, in a fishing village called Shaiba in Kuwait. And that's where I first learned Arabic. Wow. What was it like growing up in these different countries in the Middle East? Um, because one, one of the main reasons that I also wanted you on the show was to talk about being a woman of Arab culture, right? And background, right? And living in these countries because oftentimes, and I don't believe I know better, but I've heard things where people think women are subservient. And from my upbringing and living in a Muslim household, that is absolutely not true at all. The woman actually ruled the roost in, in different ways. There were just cultural, um, it was almost like protections. And, and there are some negatives that we know, right? But, and that's with many cultures around the world for women in, in general. Um, but what was it like? Can you let people know, you know, just don't put women down over there. <laughs> I mean, um, it, it's, you know, I think that's something we need to talk about as, as a global issue with, with women and growing up, there's just different, um, rules that women have, have been raised under. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that they are behind. Do, do you know what I mean? Like we're not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, my experience growing up in the Middle East, I mean, I never experienced that women were subservient to men, mm-hmm. even in my dad's um, Middle Eastern household in Jerusalem. Um, you know, there was a respect for the men. They went out and they did work and they came back and, you know, meals were on the table and stuff like that. But I never, ever felt um, women were subservient in any way or had less rights. Now, you know, as... Uh, like all cultures, you're going to have instances where women are put down, and we have to talk about that as well, you know, when we're um, talking about that. But when I was growing up, I never really felt anyone um, was put down. Uh, there were things, there were accepted roles, let me put it that way. Mm. Accepted things, well, I mean, for well, example, well. my little school, my little village school, they let us out. 10 minutes before they let out the boys school next door so that girls could get home before the boys came out because they did not want the sexes intermingling in the street, you know? Right. Um, but we sort of accepted that, you know, we just accepted the boys were going to run out like hooligans and, um, you know, tease us or taunt us or something. So we, I mean, I was taken home by a driver in a car because I lived, you know, 10 minutes away by car but the other girls walked in the streets. They did, you know, they went to the dry cleaners, to the laundry, to the, um, to the stores. To, they did, you know, whatever. But there were certain rule, rules and of roles, you know, that each gender did. 
But mm. I never felt that women were downtrodden or, or put down. And certainly in places like Lebanon and uh, Syria, you know, were, which were much more open than in Kuwait at that time. I'm talking about the 50s, the late 50s and early mm. 60s. Um, women had a lot of, I mean, we were wearing mini skirts in Beirut. We were wearing bikinis on the beach, you know, <laughs> Kuwait, everyone was, who wanted to could swim, um, Arabs and non-Arabs. So I never really felt in my family and certainly not in my household that women were put down. Mm. And, and women, you know, are strong in different cultures. I mean, in Africa, they're, <sighs> It's it's a complex thing. It's complicated. Let's yes, put it, it that is. way. It is. To bring up. But I think it's, even if it's complex and complicated, it should be part of conversations um, globally. And, you know, in, in Africa, um, African women, depending on where, um, some were in really bad situations of, you know, being raped all the time by their husband, uh, parents selling them off. Um, and, you know, even that's women being mutilated, you know. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, depending on where and how and if education was brought in or um, there was also really incredibly strong women that you do not mess with the mama. Uh-uh, you do not um, <laughs> mess with her. She'll hit you over the head with a shoe. You know, and I, I mean it in a, in a, in, you know, just I, I, not derogatory when I say that. Um, and, and they were not. You know, people kind of look down going, oh, if men are treating this way that they're that they're lower and they're not. They're not. That doesn't mean that they're not smart. Doesn't mean that they don't have a soul. Does not mean that they don't have inner strength or strength to do the incredible. And I, that's what I witnessed growing up. Um, and that was pretty much in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, oh, and nineties, early nineties. Um, throughout Kenya, South Africa, we lived in England too. And, um, just a different, just different and every, and also different. Almost, do you feel like we should, be looking at just meet people and communicate with them instead of almost having like a pretense of what a culture is like sometimes just connect with people and and get to know them well absolutely i mean we you know we form these uh, stereotypes in our head now you know some people cover their head with a hijab you know if they're islamic um this is often a choice. I'm very much against anybody being forced to cover or to do this, but often it's the person themselves that they're, they're devout or they believe in this. And that should be, we should not form a stereotype just because someone is covering their hair, you know? Um, I've never covered, no one in my family ever covered. I mean, even except the old, old ladies, you know, uh, would cover their hair with kind of a shawl kind of thing, but, other women have chosen to do this. Um, maybe it's a sort of a political statement people in some parts of the world are having, you know, uh, uh, trying to form an identity. I'm not sure. Some of it's truly religious. Um, but I think we form stereotypes in our head and, and other cultures do about Americans mm -hmm. as well. You know, it's mm -hmm. not just uh, the yeah. ugly American traveler. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I mean, somehow, somehow Westerners are looked upon as inferior in a funny way there you know mm -hmm. like they're not they're not arab you know we are we are much more noble and better you know <laughs> i mean there are some people who say that we have know. the medjool dates and the oil that's that <laughs> yes right i mean every culture i think not demonizes but dehumanizes another culture mm. um um so 
there are many things in the Arab culture, I would say, that in terms of women's rights that certainly need work on and the legal system and things like that. Um, but I, I mean, we had a, t until some years ago, things like honor killing um, in, in some parts of the Middle East, you know, where a woman who transgressed, transgressed, had, you know, uh, married, I mean, sex out of wedlock or something mm -hmm. was punishable almost by death by one of her cousins or brothers to, you know, clear the family name, uh, this kind of sort of backward thinking. But this is not, this is rare. It is rare, but we have to you know, enforce laws that stop that from happening. I mean, we have wife beaters in this country, right? We yep. have abusers in this country. But so everywhere, I think um, male dominance has been sort of a general rule. But I don't find that in the Middle East, women are have inferior uh, views of themselves at all. That's why that's my point of this is like, you know, women just, yeah, get to know people. And I think if you look at every country, there's been slavery, every country, there's been abuse, um, not just to women, but to, to um, men, you know, men do things to men, you know, cultures Absolutely. do things to cultures. So that's, that's the way that goes. Um, growing up there, though, too, in the eras that you did, um, the timeline, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, those time frames. I think you also paint this picture of, of beauty and, and a joyous regions, you know, just different than what we, you know, you talk about going to Hawaii and, you know, that wasn't as, you know, a safe feeling because of nuclear, <laughs> what was going on, yes. you know? <laughs> so nuclear drills and things like that. My mom remembers that going to school in California, like get under the desk, you know, right. things right. like that. And, and in Africa, me growing up, I was taught how to, you know, discern guns like from an AK-47 and what a limpet mine looks like and things like that. So I was raised a little different, but I don't know. You just kind of do it and then you just got to hope everything's fine. It's weird, huh? Well, you know, I mean, I I have, uh, you know, some grandchildren here, young grandchildren, and I shudder to think that at this point in time, they're going to have active shooter drills in school. I mean, what kind of yeah. childhood is that? Um, I assure you, there is not a single place in the Middle East where that was ever or will ever be considered a drill to give children. Um, but people don't run around there with guns, uh, don't have access to guns, I should say, if it's not a war zone now, you know, that, that there's mm -hmm. a distinction there. But I just, uh, when, when I first went to Hawaii and was, I went for an extra month, we stayed there rather because Kuwait was so hot to go back to, so in August, we wouldn't go back till late September when school started. And so I'd go for a month into the local public school in Hawaii. And I was shocked on the first or second day when, you know, the teachers were drilling people on asking them, quizzing them on what they would do if there was a, a bomb. And people were coming up with all kinds of, like you said, your mom did, you know, hiding under the desk or, or, or hitting the dust or whatever. And I thought, this is so weird. I could not wait to get back to Kuwait where, you know, these things were not a topic. Yeah. Cause when I was growing up in South Africa, there was all kinds of stuff going on in Kuwait that, you know, was not like you would, you were like, Oh, we're glad we're not in Kuwait right now. Right. You know, as teenagers, we thought, well, if we're going to get in trouble, at least we're not in trouble in Kuwait. 
you know, that was kind of a saying in, in my high school. That's interesting. What years were that? That, that? Oh, boy, that was the late 80s. Going 91, I graduated. Oh. Now everybody knows my age, yes. Okay. Um, graduated well, 91. Was... So, yeah, that was the time frame. And we go, well, at least, you know. Um, that was the invasion. Going... The South Iraqi Africa invasion. Was... The Iraqi yep. invasion of Kuwait. So that would have been normal, of course. That was a very a year, a very bad year. But you know what you, when you're, I think we, we, what's so important about your, your memoir and, and your story is you're reminding people of some of the roots and, um, you know, we think of Kuwait now, I think that's what we think of immediately. And, you know, I think about when I was, you know, in high school going with the Kuwait, we were going through a crazy time too with South Africa at the time, you know, oh, right. and. And then, right. you know, you, it affected every culture in South Africa, what was going on. And apartheid was was horrible. Um, it was also, you know, at one point it was uh, my mom has been kicked out of going into a restaurant because she was a female. So it wasn't just apartheid on black people yeah. or anybody of color. It yeah. was apartheid on women in South oh Africa goodness. at a specific time. And people forgotten <laughs> that, you know, this is the men's only restaurant. Don't yeah. you dare go in there. You know, you look. You were looked down on like you were a lady of the night. <laughs> well, I would, I would say yes. That sort of thing. That in general, in the Middle East, you do have, or you did have when I was growing up. Now it's not so common. You had men's cafe, and so the men would go there after dinner in the evening and play backgammon or cards or smoke argile. You know, the water pipe. And this was a men's only for sure. No woman would have dreamt of going there. Maybe a little girl could run in to notify her dad that he was needed at home, but nobody could actually go in there and sit. That was not done. So I can identify with that. It was just like, um, you know, for a woman to walk into maybe a a men's only cigar lounge here or something, you know, it's something. Yeah, but it wasn't always even, you know, my mom also just, you know, she's an American, right? Mm -hmm. And with an American brain Mm -hmm. and going, this is what I'm used to. And that's not, you know, that's those things that you have to kind of learn as you go into another culture and and adopt and and grow with. And it's not necessarily, it sounds bad, but it's not, it's kind of like the women have their own thing going too. Oh, absolutely. So, and no so, man would be permitted to walk into a women's area in a household. If it was one of those conservative households where they have a separate place for women to gather and, and mothers and daughters and sisters and in-laws and uh, men would not wander in there, you know, they, or they would politely knock and, uh, you know, so there is kind of segregation there in, in traditional areas. Now we're not talking about the big cosmopolitan cities right. that doesn't happen, but yeah. Yeah. So it was um, there, there are those rules and things, but they're kind of, you know, if you grow up with those, you learn to kind of early on accept them and you know how to navigate them. It never occurred. Like for example, on feast days in Jerusalem, when it was a, a Islamic holiday, uh, the men went to the mosque. The women didn't go to the mosque. They were home cooking. Mm-hmm. And so the men would go to the mosque, say the the, the prayers, the, the holiday prayers, the Eid prayers. They'd then go to the cemetery to visit the deceased relatives. That was a, a you know, a, a tradition. And then they'd come home. By then there would be a big feast prepared, like a Thanksgiving feast, mm-hmm. you know. 
but the women never went to the mosque in those days. Uh, so um, that everybody knew their role. And it wasn't that one was subservient to the other. It was just, this is the way it was, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, half the time when um, on, on the, you know, Americanized Anglo side, British, na- you name it, right? right. Um, if they say uh, prayer at dinner, grace, saying grace, it's usually <laughs> the man at the head of the table. What's the difference? Yeah. Right? Right. So right. Absolutely. There's no, there's no difference. And it's kind of like, well, that's your duty. This is my duty. Kind right. of splitting up what you're supposed to do. Right. Um, I remember going to a mosque in Durban in South Africa and um, getting in trouble for my shoes, taking my shoes off. Both of us had to take our shoes off. Nancy right. And, and um, but I remember just, I learned so much. And it made me really think about different religions. It was very fascinating because of, you know, they were like, well, you know, the Bible's younger. And uh, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But it was just, it made me really, as a young person, open my mind to different religions. And that that was really a kind of one of those things that happen in life that really change you. And um, to be way, I, I think it was just I was younger, I was like 13 or something. And kind of at that point where I was coming of age, like what your memoir is telling your story right. growing up. Right. And I remember going, oh, well, this is what they believe here. Well, let me dig into that. And then I'm like, this isn't sounding so bad that I'll go listen to, you know, a different, you know, my best friends was Muslim. She was a naughty girl, though. She got into trouble. <laughs> she, 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 she misbehaved. They um, had her naughty dad, Muslims, her, too. Oh, her dad got on school. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was a bad girl, but she was very sweet. And um I, I loved Nesley. She I loved her. Um but um you go into a different side of town with a different belief and culture and hear the religious beliefs and you go, Oh, wait a minute, this sounds even more cooler. <laughs> like you know what I mean? So you can't really it, it just it acceptance is so much easier and far more fun. Like I said, we'll go back to good food, but growing up, I want to go back to your mom. And losing your mom, especially at the age that you were losing your mom, like I don't, I think I would have completely lost it. My mom and I are so close. And being a, an only child and pretty much a single mom life, right? Um, for majority of the time, if something had happened, there were people that I, I can trust that would have helped. Uh huh. Yeah. But it had yeah. to have been different for you living in these different countries when the household was kind of Americanized and yet you were in these different Middle Eastern countries, that had to have been different for you. You know, it was because we always had a very American household. You know, the woman I think sets the tone of the house and my mother was unapologetically uh, a Southern American woman from Tennessee. She never, she never, you know, wore any uh, Arab dress or, or, converted or she was really not religious at all but so our tone the tone of my home was very secular very um open very western and my dad went along with everything thanksgiving easter christmas you know he he was muslim but he didn't have any qualms about celebrating all of that we made big to-dos of christmas trees and gifts and easter bunnies and all that stuff so um um I forgot what you were asking me about my mother. No, I was going to about your mom. Yes. Yeah, going from, so the, you know, the atmosphere, like- 
Correct. The atmosphere in the home was very, very Western, very American, I would add, because we lived in an American compound, uh, American mm-hmm. British compound uh, that was an oil company. Uh, comp- so we, our friends were mostly Americans and Brits. And so um, when she died, uh, I was 11, when she died, that really changed because um, the people who came to take care of me, her side of the family were all in, of course, in the United States. We were in Kuwait. And my grandparents were in Honolulu. They were too far to come and take care of me. But my Arab aunts came from Jerusalem. They flew over to Kuwait. And they would sort of come, one in particular, and stay with us for a few months. And I had a housekeeper also who was a Middle Eastern mm. from Jerusalem. So but the, the, the Western part kind of went away slowly. Uh, and my father became, you know, trying to raise a young girl on his own reverted back to the sort of traditional Arab culture he had grown up with, you know. And so the whole tone of the house slowly, slowly um, began to change. And then, of course, he married, he remarried later. And um, uh, when I was 12 and a half, he remarried an Arab woman. Mm. And so then, of course, that sort of solidified a much more Middle Eastern atmosphere in my home. That was, it was a little bit sort of confusing, and I was a little resentful of that, you know. Um, he became a lot more, uh, like probably many fathers of teenage girls, a lot more um, controlling and wanting to make sure I was not going to be getting into trouble. So there were a lot more rules than some of my American friends had, and I mm-hmm. resented that. Mm-hmm. So that was a, think, a big yeah. shift in the household, yeah. But you got to also kind of, I think, you know, as an adult later, do you look back and go, okay, well, he's a father, mm-hmm. protective, and yes. this is what I know. Yeah. He was trying his best to keep me um, respectable, let's say that, and in an Arab culture, because, you know, all of our friends were also, we had a lot of Arab friends, family. And so had I been running around, um doing what all the American children, the kids did, you know, preteen and teenagers, I would have definitely been slandered by um, our more conservative friends who would have thought I was, you know, just a loose girl, a quote unquote. I mean, it wasn't much difference from, say, life in a small town USA, you know, a couple of mm-hmm. decades ago right. uh, in the South when I, you know, mm-hmm. some decades ago, well, people are more conservative, people, you know, know everybody and talk about everybody and, you know, that kind of thing. So he was really reverting to what he thought would make me be respected in the long run in my community. And I don't blame him for that. I mean, sometimes I feel he was a little bit too rigid. He could, you know, but it's the fear, as you say, a parent's fear that their daughters or sons in some cases, you know, will will harm themselves. Or someone will harm them, especially. Or someone will harm them as more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that was in in my teenage years. That was in the sixties, and of course, uh, you know, there were drugs floating around, especially in the American teenage world. And my father heard about all this, even in Kuwait. You know, things happen, and so my father heard all these rumors, and of course, he, he so he decided not to let me go to these American parties that I wanted to go to. Um, that yeah. somehow certain times got out of hand, you know, and I resented that. But what is, what oh, you, you know, yeah, I, I got into a, in enough trouble, and you know, my mom being a single mom 
in Africa was not. No, that must have been very difficult. It was not easy in Kenya. She even went to open a bank account and had she could in a post office box couldn't do it. But she was female, man. and she would go out in the street and find a guy, and uh, just oh. would pick him up and say, "Okay, you're you're opening the you you know you're helping me. Just stand there." Yeah, <laughs> that's true, and that's those are the parts that I feel you know we need to change in in the Middle Eastern culture. Uh, well, I'll call. I, I don't. Sorry, but it, I mean, look at what's going on in the states now. So I, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> well, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we just, you know, and I think that's the other part is, you know, you've got a, a interesting way of bringing balance through your stories. And um, I, tell everybody about the dance part, because I think dance is this. And it's interesting because you talk about your dad on this conservative side of like protective and everything. <laughs> Yet dance is freeing. Right. But then if you don't have you have to know the you know, if you're going to do like ballroom or something. Right. You have to know the steps and the rules to be able to be free and look free as a performance. Correct. You know, know, my dad was, um, when he came to the United States as a 17 year old student, at some point he um, took ballroom dance lessons and he learned to dance and he probably had a lot of musical innate musical ability. And so he was always a very good dancer. And in the fifties and sixties, when I was growing up and, um, Latin dancing was very big uh, all over, everywhere. You know, it had the, the Jamaican, uh, Harry Belafonte, uh, you know, all this musical uh, influences from Afro-Cuban music was sort of coming into the U.S. And then it also went overseas. So uh, when And I- it is sexy. I'm sorry, sorry, but it is. It's sexy music. It oh, is. very sexy music. And and my dad would. We had all these Harry Belafonte musics and cha cha cha, rumba. You know, Latin music, Italian Italian music. Um, and so he would constantly be putting music on, uh, at home, and we would dance. He and I would dance. He and my mother would dance. There were dance parties of the adults always that, you know, I I could somehow attend for a while before I was put to bed. And so I grew up with people dancing and even the women in my Arab family, I have an aunt who was very musical and she would shimmy and dance, you know, whenever she was cleaning house or something, oh, listening yeah, yeah. to blaring radio. <laughs> uh, it, this was, I grew up thinking all Arabs could dance. You know, this was just my, because there's always music in the streets. If you walk down any Arab streets, North Africa, I don't know about Kenya, mm-hmm. but you walk down the street in Tunisia, oh, yeah. Morocco, you hear music blaring from balconies from yes, and people are dancing. And so it was a surprise to me when I started to teach dance that I found there were a lot of Arabs who couldn't dance, <laughs> who hadn't been exposed. So again, it affects, it depends on your family and how, you know, how musical or, you know, open to dancing they were, but mostly um, dancing is a, was not a new thing for me growing up at all. Uh, but for some people it was. But moving into more professional dancing, that was not something, for example, that I had expected to want to do uh, or that even that my father approved of at that point. Of course, I was married and I didn't have to ask his permission. But I could tell that he thought it was kind of silly and kind of not proper for, it was not ladylike for me to go out and, you know, teach dance or perform dance. He didn't mind if I went out and danced with my husband. That was fine. 
but he sort of frowned upon the idea that I would be teaching dancing to strangers or performing, heaven forbid, that I'd be out on a stage performing. Mm. But he sort of turned the other way, turned, how do you say, turned a blind eye to it. Um, but he sort of stopped being the kind of um, enthusiastic dancer he was in his youth. He became sort of like put that aside as that was my youth, you know, which is sort of sad. But um, occasionally he would get up and dance with us when we asked him. Uh, but I don't know. For me, it was just it was such a part of my nature from watching it as a child that I just got into it at some point. By that point, I'd been a, a novelist for some years and I would published and all of that. But I wanted to get away from the computer and move more. And I loved all the Latin mm. music came back into my life as as the memoir will, will sort of uh, lead you to see. I love it. I love it. I think it's so important. Dance and dance is very, um, so little written about it too. Um, especially in, in fiction, we need more dance fiction. Uh, we've interviewed <laughs> maybe two to three authors of four. Oh, five now. I mean, that's how few, and we've done like, I don't know, probably thousands of interviews at this point. I mean, we've been doing this for over 16, 17 years. So I, I'm wow. it's just so rare to have dance it be part of it. Um and I think we need more. So I, I think it's I'm I love that you bring that into your memoir, but um very cool to have you on the show and appreciate you sharing your story and having this discussion too. And um I want everyone to go to your website, uh Catherine Abdulbaki.com is the website. Again, uh, the memoir is called Dancing into the Light, an Arab-American girlhood in the Middle East. And before you go, what is one thing if a young woman reads your book that you want her to get out of it? Well, wherever love, she is in the world. Wherever she is in the world, I'd love her to know that she should follow her passion and her dreams and my mother did that when she married a foreigner. She always wanted to go, go beyond her cultural limitations. And um, I have done that in my writing by pursuing my dream of dance. I think anything a woman wants to do, she should pursue. And there's joy in it. And there's light at the end of the tunnel always. That's what dancing into the light meant, kind of, that, you know, through the sadness and darkness that you may pass through, you will come to a beautiful time in your life and mm. pursue your dreams. Don't let mm. anyone stop you from pursuing your dreams. Exactly. And everyone also go look up uh, Catherine's uh, fiction. You've got five books uh, that are fiction, right? For everyone to yeah. dig into as well. Um, I love that you wrote. Uh, one more thing. I know you have to go, but writing. When did you realize you wanted to write? Like what led you to put pen to paper? My dad kind of put the idea in my head when I was about 12 years old, when I asked him one day, what should I be when I grow up? And he said, be a writer like your mother. My mom was a, uh, she'd studied journalism and she loved to write. Uh, I don't know that she, she published uh, very early on at 17. She had a story in 17 magazine, but um, he thought that would be a good career for to, for me, because I could sort of write and be home with my kids. I mean, it was sort of an old fashioned idea, but that lodged the idea in my head. And I just found that I had a knack for writing and I loved it. And that, you know, that 
um, it never entered my mind not to be a writer after age 12. Let's put it that way. I love it. I love it. I know you also speak at universities and speak to women's groups too. So we love what you're doing. Again, everyone, uh, we've got the link up for Catherine's website in the show notes. We want to thank everyone for joining us here on Big Blend Radio. Uh, take care, everyone. And thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Lisa. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Big Blend Radio. Keep up with our shows at BigBlendRadio.com.